Hey, Future Hindsight listeners, we've just been given an awesome opportunity to expand our show, but we need your help. We're doing a short audience survey and need at least 50 responses. That's where you come in. To participate, please go to our show notes and click on the link for the survey there. It'll take about five minutes to complete it. It's a great free way to support Future Hindsight and all the work that we do. We hope you'll take the time to help us out. Thanks so much in advance, and thank you also for being such loyal listeners. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guests today are Sarah Pierce and Amy Sazu. Sarah is Director of Education Equity at NDN Collective, working to expand opportunities for Native American students to have access to culturally relevant and culturally responsive learning environments. Amy is an NDN collective organizer who served as Parent Advisory Committee President to help Native parents and students bring their issues to senior leadership of the school board in their districts. We heard about the forcible removal of Native children from their families to be put in boarding schools last week, and how education was not only imposed on Indigenous children, but also used as a tool of cultural genocide. Unsurprisingly, negative attitudes and treatment towards Native students persist in our school system. Indigenous South Dakotans are among the lowest performing demographic in terms of achievement rates, graduation rates, and also mobility rates. There's a gamut of social issues that we see that are primarily symptoms of trauma that was basically started in the boarding school. And right now, I think education is a way in which we can start navigating the systems of oppression. It's the systems in place that reinforce the sentiments of white supremacy that keep Indigenous people specifically from rising up and prospering in a society. We talk about the history of schooling in Indigenous communities and opportunities for education equity going forward. Let's listen in. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And thank you, Amy, for joining us, too. Likewise, I'm glad to be here. So the United States has a long history of eradicating Native cultures and communities through education. The most egregious, as many of us know, was the taking of Indigenous children from their communities and putting them in boarding schools. Though a lot has changed, educational outcomes are still terrible. Sarah, prior to being Director of Education Equity at NDN Collective, you advocated for Title VI education programs in South Dakota and Nebraska. What is Title VI and what is it meant to achieve? Title VI is a federally funded program designed to meet the unique academic and cultural needs of Indigenous students. It's designed exclusively to influence changes that help systemically yield student success, not only academically, but reinforce the solid sense of identity and language and cultural understanding. And so we see these programs exist both on reservations and off reservations in urban districts across the country. So Amy, how does that translate in the schools? I understand you work with the communities together and what's your experience with Title VI on the ground? So one aspect of Title VI is that they are required to have 
a parent advisory committee. So they have to ask parents what they think that the students need from the district to be successful, basically. I served as the PAC president. And so what the PAC does is bring those concerns, their advice to Title VI, who is then the liaison to the school district, to senior leadership, and to the school board. The parents really feel like they aren't being heard or they aren't being taken seriously and that they really are kind of pigeonholed into this tokenized position instead of being an authentic voice with concerns that are straight from the community. We're also feeling like we're not part of the solution process for some of these issues. Yeah, I feel like the biggest problem from my perspective as an outsider is that we don't even know that there are concerns within Native communities. For example, we see the Standing Rock Pipeline protests and we see protests against Trump showing up at Mount Rushmore, but we don't hear very much about education in equity for Native communities at all. Like we hear about that in Latinx or Black communities, but not about yours. Why is that? One of the unique challenges that you alluded to previously is the fact that starting from 1868, education was a compulsory imposition on our Indigenous peoples across the United States. In South Dakota specifically, we were home to several different residential schools, both Christian and non-Christian, that contributed to what our elders affectionately refer to as the severing of the sacred hoop of our nation. It's where the family structures as we know it were compromised. It's where the seriousness of generational trauma really started and then began a vicious cycle that has been perpetuated until today. I think one of the primary reasons why we don't hear about it is because the narrative, as Amy mentioned, falls on deaf ears. I think we see the problem. In black and white across state achievement data, we've seen that the current education system has failed our entire demographic for generations. At the federal level, at the state level, the things that we have to create prosperity are limited, and that keeps us in this perpetual cycle and stuck in confinement to a system that has succeeded in cultural genocide and assimilation. And we're just trying to break free from that, stepping into a different time of cultural safety. So I have a question about the ways in which the education system today continues to perpetuate overt racism against Indigenous children. Amy, do you want to tackle that one? Curriculum choice and the actual education system itself is built to eliminate us. And the education system is so longstanding and has operated the way it has for so long that even Indigenous people working within the field, it's hard for them to break free of that way of thinking. We are perpetuating that silencing, that erasure of our history and of who we are and of our connections to the lands that we are all sitting on. That is a a big part of what we are trying to break free from and things that we are trying to acknowledge and without shame, but in like full honesty and transparency and saying we can do better, but moving forward, we need to start acknowledging historical truths and the impact they've had on generations of our people. All of my grandparents went to boarding school and the effect that that had on my parents was really profound because my um, mom decided that she would learn about Lakota spirituality and make sure that that was a bigger part of our life than the Catholicism, the things that her parents saw, what she saw, and my dad kind of felt the same way. 
they both decided too that punitive punishment wasn't going to be a part of our lives. And so in my family, I'm the first generation free of that trauma. And so I'm able to teach my kids in a good way and in honesty and talk about the resilience and strength of our people and not fall into those kind of historic pitfalls of where they don't understand the accurate history of their own people and Indigenous people across the United States. That is one big way that the school system has been unwilling to change. And we just don't talk about the accurate history of the United States and the impact on the people here. If it's some way that we could change, you know, curriculum choices and accurate history. That would be definitely a good first step forward. I have a question about punishment, since you said it used to be a punitive system. But from everything that I have read, it's that Native youths in school continue to be punished more than other students for essentially, you know, same teenage infractions, skipping class, let's say, or something relatively minor. They get expelled for very little reason and are driven out of this system. In your mind, what is the first thing that needs to happen in order to find a path for educational justice in your community? It brings us back to that narrative that we talked about, how and why education as we know it was imposed on our people. Because of the inconvenience that was viewed that our people posed to the United States government in westward expansion, we know that the basic premise for assimilation efforts was basically to control or tolerate Indigenous people. So we see that being perpetuated in the schools today, where if we can just tolerate these students, then we're winning. An elder by the name of Joseph Marshall III tells the story comparing Lakota people to wolves in the fact that wolves are generally viewed antagonistically as very predatory animals. However, wolves are very much parallel to humans in that they are extremely loyal to their families, they travel in packs, they protect their young, and they just have an inherent sense and desire to live, right? So when we think about those spaces, I think the civic outreach and obligations that we've engaged in over the years brought us closer together. We know through roles in community efforts such as the Miniluzahan Okolikichiapi Ambassadors, a leadership organization geared towards bridging gaps and racial barriers that prevent prosperity in our city. But having those relationships and humanizing the other, I think, is a great first step. And I will let Amy go into more depth on that as she spent extensive amounts of time advocating for youth in the justice system as well. You know, we've all heard that saying, nothing about us without us is for us. And I think that that's a big part of it, just inclusion and recognizing that the voices of community are relevant in making decisions, recognizing indigenous people as the experts of our own culture and language would be a really big one. Inclusion is the biggest piece and recognizing that systems are structures of white supremacy. And I know that's really hard. And I've heard like, well, it just turns people off when you say stuff like that. If we can't even say it, how are we going to change it? Reimagining education through the lens of cultural proficiency and inclusion are good starting points. And they're exciting things to think about as parents, that our kids would have opportunities to 
move through the education system grounded in who they are, not ashamed, not learning random things. I always remember like as a, a kid trying to figure out pilgrims and the Indians and like, who are the Indians? I knew I was indigenous. I was Indian. I was from Rosebud. I knew that it was me, but not recognizing that there's so many different indigenous people across our country and how diverse we all are and how far removed our kids are from that. Moving forward, being able to ground our kids in cultural identity in the school system, recognizing that that's important, that our kids see who they are and are proud of who they are and can be just unapologetically indigenous, as Sarah and I like to say. We want it to be not viewed as abrasive conversation, but as ways we can dig in and be uncomfortable and figure out what we need to do so that all of our kids um, are prosperous and have the same opportunities inside of school and beyond that. A lot of Native children actually go to regular public school. And so what does it mean to be inclusive for you inside a public school in the United States? Creating spaces where Indigenous students can be unapologetically Indigenous in school settings. Public schools are very Eurocentrically driven. When you enter the walls of the school, if you are of the dominant culture, you are going to see yourself reflected in literature. You're going to see yourself reflected in the curriculum, in the founding fathers of your school. You're generally, as an Indigenous student in America, not going to see your ancestral heritage reflected in the walls of that school. You're not going to generally read history through the lens or narrative of your people in the way they saw it. Creating inclusive spaces for education in America, specifically for indigenous students in America, is really honoring the narrative of the indigenous. I mean, every single public school in America sits on indigenous land, a land that was stolen from people generations ago. However, we do little to recognize that effort, right? Every single person who's benefiting from any sort of system in America is benefiting from the blood of stolen indigenous land. The house that I live in currently is on land stolen from my people. The schools that I went to off the reservation and out of South Dakota are on lands that were stolen from other indigenous people. So I think just having that acknowledgement and having being able to see the narrative and the experience reflected in the walls of those school systems is a step towards inclusion. Just for context, I would like to share a little bit of data. This last year, there was approximately 15,000 Indigenous students identified as part of the total pre-K through 12 system here in South Dakota, but there was only 1.6% Indigenous staff. There's only 3% management. Those are the people who decide the curriculum choices, the book choices. So only 1% of the teaching staff across our state are Indigenous people. And only about three in education specialist positions. We don't see Indigenous people as experts. I mean, it's not to say that Indigenous people don't want to be teachers, but do they feel like public school systems are a safe place or a, a place that they want to go and they feel included and part of and that is it something that they want to do like I don't know that's really good data to include here so to give us a little bit more context 15,000 students K through 12 are indigenous so what is the total population of school children in South Dakota around 139,000 
And this is in public school. Thank you. So, Sarah, the governor of South Dakota has recently made changes in education directives for indigenous communities in the state. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what the effect has been? When Governor Christie Nome took office, one of her first changes was to remove the Office of Indian Education, which was housed under the Department of Education and then placed it under the Department of Tribal Relations. In her sentiments, the Office of Tribal Relations would do due diligence to the role because it serviced the nine tribes that share geographic boundaries with South Dakota. One of our largest indigenous populated districts represents 69 tribal nations across the United States. And so you can see the level of, of advocacy that doesn't happen based on the additional tribes that contribute to that indigenous student population in those larger city spaces. Another unique challenge is that the Office of Tribal Relations is a very small office staffed with less than five people who are working on issues affecting tribes directly. If we look at nationwide data, it appears that roughly two thirds of indigenous people reside in urban settings. And so when we think about tribal relations taking on the task of overseeing Indigenous education, it's a clear evasion of responsibility to the State Department of Education, or at least that's the messaging that's being sent to advocates of Indian education in our state, including tribal education directors and other leaders who reside in cities. Hello, Future Hindsight listeners. One great way you can support our show is by sharing this episode with your friends who you think would enjoy it. We have an easy-to-use tool that makes it really simple to share episodes through email, social media, your group thread, or wherever you share podcasts. And to say thanks, we'll thank everyone who signs up to share here on the podcast. We have some other fun perks we'd like to send your way too, including a future hindsight button and Moleskin notebook. Help support the show and get your special link to share at refer.fm slash future hindsight or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you. What's an optimal solution that you want to see that gives Native children a high quality education that sets them up for modern life, whether they live on or off the reservation, without compromising Native identities? In your dream world, what does it look like? So dream world would be our community-based schools where Indigenous people would be able to come in and non-Native people too and to teach where the curriculum is grounded in the culture and values of our people and that we are able to expand to a, a pre-K through 12 system. We would love to see magnet schools popping up all over and immersion schools that were supported by public school districts as part of their strategic planning too. The big dream is that it's not just the dream of people like Sarah and I, and the amazing people that we get to work with on the coalition, that it's the dream of everybody that we close the achievement gap with the help and guidance of Indigenous people. And I would defer to Sarah to talk about her dream. Yeah, so Sarah, talk about your dream, but also talk about the work that you're doing in order to get closer to that dream. Absolutely. In the work that we're doing on behalf of our roles in the Education Equity Department at Andean Collective is to really start addressing 
what we refer to as ground zero of public education. We advocate on behalf of Indigenous students, and specifically in South Dakota right now, focusing on the fact that Indigenous South Dakotans are homegrown South Dakotans with the lowest mobility rates. The other interesting thing to know, when we think about achievement rates and graduation rates, we are among the lowest performing demographic in the state. We have lower levels of mobility, not only at the post-secondary level, but movement out of the state, etc. I think one of the dreams I have is to really envision what does sovereign education look like to us? How can we mirror the values and beliefs that we have in our house and reinforce them in a school setting where our students feel safe, confident, and valued as who they are as individuals. NDN Collective created the South Dakota Education Equity Coalition, and that coalition was established in the summer of 2019 with the sole purpose of promoting a school choice bill in South Dakota. Due to the demographic statistics of Indigenous students in the education system, we believe that in order to target this inequity would be to create a network of community-based schools uniquely designed to the needs of the community in which the school will reside. So last year we created this broad-based cross-sector coalition to champion our school choice bill. Our school choice bill passed unanimously through the Senate last year, failed in the House Education Committee, Despite having unanimous support from all nine tribes in our state, from having support from the governor's office, the Department of Education, as well as other statewide tribal entities. So this year we debriefed, we got back to the drawing board, we increased our coalition membership and identified four additional priority areas of focus. So we can start championing efforts collaboratively to provide for the funding and creation of Ocheti Shakoin community-based schools. And so this bill SB 68 would enable us to design small community-based schools that would be publicly funded in collaboration with communities to hopefully demonstrate a model that could be essentially replicated in existing public schools um, settings in South Dakota. Oh, that's great. I was actually just going to ask you if there is a model school that is replicable across the United States. What are the long-term repercussions of America's failure to deliver high-quality education to Native Americans, to your point earlier that they are at the bottom of the achievement gap? I think there's a whole host of of repercussions and implications that the boarding school movement caused on our people. First and foremost, trauma is the biggest repercussion as a result of the boarding school movement. Think about poverty, economic hardship, incarceration rates, poor achievement data in public school settings, health disparities, mental health issues. There's a gamut of social issues that we see that are primarily symptoms of trauma that was basically started in the boarding school. And right now, I think education is a way in which we can start navigating the systems of oppression. Amy alluded to that so well earlier, that it's not a fallacy of people. It's the systems in place that reinforce the sentiments of white supremacy that keep Indigenous people specifically from rising up and prospering in society. I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Sarah said. We're never going to make change if we can't start talking about symptoms of oppression and the implications of white supremacy in educations and systems across the country. 
that we're not coming together and starting to talk about solutions and starting to talk about really hard truths and working through that discomfort, that we're always just going to be at odds. And so our community is not lacking expertise. We're not lacking dreamers or the education or experience to solve a lot of these issues. We're lacking the access. And I would say mothers and women in particular are going to be gaslighted as being angry or mean or hard to work with. When we advocate um, passionately for our students, the term for children in Lakota is Wakanija, which means sacred beings. That's literally how we view our children. We hold all of our hopes and dreams for them and our next generation so close to our hearts that when we speak, you know, you, it's it comes out passionately. It comes out strong. You know, that mama bear that's in all of us comes out until we can come to a place where we can start reimagining education, start thinking about different ways of solving problems that have been identified for like 60 years in our community. And while everybody recognizes it, we have never come together to a place to say, these are the implications of the education system as it is. We need to change that. How do you think we could change that? I know a lot of people in our community who are willing to come to the table for those conversations. And until we are allowed a seat at the table, our kids are going to continue to be marginalized and fall behind and just kind of kept there. They're going to continue moving through the school to prison pipeline. They're going to keep dropping out. They're going to keep moving back to the reservation, coming back up here, trying to find their place. That's the passion behind why I'm here, why we do what we're doing and why we are so passionate about the work that we are doing. So as an everyday citizen, a white American citizen, what can I do to advance education equity for indigenous populations? Sarah. I think one of the biggest things for white Americans in championing efforts for indigenous student success is to really start elevating the urgent narrative of indigenous education and start taking responsibility, especially for those people who have influential roles and positions in power, not only in the ed system, but cross-sector systems that do benefit from prosperous education systems. I think another key element is to have those individuals consult with authentic Indigenous leaders in the community to really encourage authentic employees to enter those workspaces and do not, even with the best of intentions, ever appropriate Indigenous culture or become a spokesperson for Indigenous people. I would say to really recognize the genius thought and philosophy that comes with being an Indigenous in the world today and then being able to defer to that genius and knowledge for expertise and consulting with community about how we can do better in our education systems. Thank you. So, Amy, the question for you is slightly different, which is to say, if I were a white parent in a community where there are also indigenous children, how can I advance education equity for all the children in those schools? I like that question. Um, <laughs> I think that non-native parents can start teaching their own kids and you can start talking about the accurate history of the land Wherever you are in the United States, you're on indigenous land. And there were some people there who were forcibly removed from their homelands. Teaching your kids that and teaching your kids that there is an alternate history than what we've all grown up learning. 
and making sure that your children and that your students know that non-Native parents have a responsibility to their community and to Indigenous people just to join us in these conversations and listen. And if there's an ask for help or if there is a meeting that we are needing support, and even if they don't understand, to come and say, I think that our leadership needs to listen to these parents. Non-Native people have that pull with leadership. Non-Native parents can show up or white people can show up and just not take it personally when we start talking about ways we can take apart white supremacist structures and that relinquishment of power and just, you know, sit in the discomfort of it, but be with us, be there, participate, support. Even if you don't totally get it, just keep coming back, keep listening and keep supporting. Good advice. So Amy, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? My kids, my kids get it. And I'm excited for us to open up this system or open up the kind of floodgates of them being able to walk forward with all of my friends, kids, and all of the Indigenous youth in our community in a way that is unapologetic, that is recognizing their cultural identity as a strength. But our, definitely our next generation is what gives me hope. And Sarah, what makes you hopeful about the future? I would echo Amy's sentiments about our youth because our youth are stepping into spaces with such more confidence than we've seen in our current generation that we are a part of, but also the generations before us. I feel like they have solutions to address our largest questions. They walk with such power, pride and confidence in who they are. And um, that's admirable and inspirational for me to be witness to every day. And I think them being able to adapt, evolve, and reclaim their ancestry is an important part of moving forward. Thank you both very much for being on Future Hindsight. And thank you very much for all the work that you do for your community. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I've always been a huge proponent of making it possible for children to reach their life's full potential. And access to high quality education has always proven to be a determining factor. Of course, it's no different for Native American children. What's truly distinct for them is that they're learning the history of the birth and evolution of the United States from the point of view of the people who drove them off their lands. Amy and Sarah are right that all Americans, Native or non-Native, should fully learn the Indigenous experience and perspective of this history. Talking about being unapologetically Indigenous deeply resonated with me. It can only be possible with honesty and truth about our past. Being clear-eyed about who we are as a nation can only strengthen our resolve in nurturing our democracy. I also think that empowering the voices of indigenous people would enrich American civic life. And finally, I felt really touched by Amy's invitation to participate and sit in the discomfort of conversations about taking apart the structures of white supremacy, even though we might not understand. I do think that the first step, the first commitment for many of us is to be willing to show up and listen. 
Next week, our guest is Walter S. Gilliam. He's professor of child psychiatry and psychology at the Yale University Child Study Center and the director of the Edward Ziegler Center in Child Development and Social Policy. We talk about implicit bias in preschool teachers, the prevalence of bias, and that having conversations about the problems we face is the first step to solving them. What we found that was a bit shocking was this, that the degree to which teachers were focusing more on black children, especially black boys, was about the same regardless of the race of the teacher. And the reason why is because the bias is implicit. It's not something that we're intending to do. It's something that we do because of our expectations. Our expectations that are shaped by the things that we see on television, the things that we hear in the news, all the things we see and all the things we hear and all the things we think we've seen and heard that tell us what to expect out of which child. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.